This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. everybody and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale and I really need to stop reading the news. This week OnlyFans made headlines with the announcement that they're banning adult content from their platform which provides primarily adult content. I mean Tumblr did something similar a few years back. What's the worst that could happen? Don't answer that. Pandemic restrictions on the production of porn made OnlyFans incredibly successful over the past year, and now they're banning the very content that made their fortune, as the company is now valued at more than a billion dollars. In recent statements, OnlyFans has made it clear that they're banning adult material due to pressure from major banks like J.P. Morgan, who have reportedly been closing the accounts of individuals and businesses in the sex work industry. As major credit card companies are getting involved, as they did with Pornhub, the company has been put into a very difficult position. But worse than OnlyFans, whose fate is uncertain at best, this affects the thousands of sex workers making safe and steady income from their platform. For those who rely on it, the effects could be catastrophic. People should be talking about this more, but porn is still a taboo subject. It's not often mentioned outside of a joking context, and if you like it, well, you certainly don't tell anybody, do you? It's looked down on as something sordid, and people's unsupportive or nasty comments about the sex workers affected by this ban show how far we still need to go as far as sex positivity is concerned. Of course, different people have different definitions of porn, and they always have. Is it movies, photos, magazines, or even romance novels with open-door love scenes? Technically, it's all of the above. In 2006, the Oxford English Dictionary updated the definition of pornography to be the explicit description or exhibition of sexual subjects or activity in literature, painting, film, etc. in a manner intended to stimulate erotic rather than aesthetic feelings. Romance still isn't generally considered porn, and neither is a lot of nude art or high-concept photography, the difference being, of course, the perception of high culture versus low culture. For those of you who haven't heard of this, you've been internalizing it all your life. It's the idea that high culture is inherently better than low culture guilty pleasures, the opera versus the Ramones, Charles Dickens versus Chuck Tingle. The problem with this is that all art has merit, and it takes a lot of skill to produce, even if it only has three chords, or happens to have a sexy dinosaur on the cover. Nothing wrong with that. But not being packaged as high culture doesn't mean that the road to ruin isn't an absolute masterpiece. The high versus low debate is snobbery, plain and simple, and that's particularly glaring 
when it applies to sex. Within romance, there are further classifications like clean or sweet, open door, high heat, or erotic, and depending on who you ask, some of these are still more acceptable than others. It's that high versus low thing again. If your books contain sex, there are still people out there on Dolly Parton's internet calling them porn. Over the last years, Romance Landia has done a terrific job of rehabilitating the image of the genre, and whether you're part of that or not, I want to challenge you to channel that same wonderful support for sex-positive, diverse, affirming content to the people trying to make a living producing adult content in a different medium. The restrictions placed on them might yet be extended to us, and after all, modern romance and porn essentially came from the same place. So today, we're going to talk about that, with a little overview of porn and erotic literature in Britain throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. This is by no means comprehensive, just the tip of the iceberg, but it's something to build on. Let's start at the beginning with the political origins of pornography. When John Cleland wrote Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure from Debtor's Prison in 1748, he couldn't have known what he was starting. More commonly known as Fanny Hill, his book became one of the most banned books in history. While it is considered the first work of prose pornography in the English language, it certainly wasn't the last. Following heroine Fanny on her adventures as a sex worker, the book touches on flagellation, homosexuality, cross-dressing, and voyeurism. Though later romantic literature loved its depictions of tragic sex workers who could only be redeemed by dying, Fanny Hill differs in that it's almost a modern romance novel. In spite of everything Fanny goes through, she's reunited with her true love Charles by the end, and she even gets her own happily ever after. As risque as the subject matter was, Cleland was using it to make a point about the sexual corruption of the upper classes. While Fanny's innocent eroticism is applauded, she freely enjoys sex, after all, her approach is contrasted with those of other characters, either looking to exploit her work or her person, the message being that sex itself wasn't bad, but the sexual excesses of the nobility spoke to moral bankruptcy and a blatant disregard for those they were exploiting. Within a year of its publication, Cleland and his publisher, Ralph Griffiths, were charged with corrupting the king's subjects. Though Cleland withdrew the book, several pirate copies ensured its place in literary infamy. When it made it to the United States, the U.S. publisher was arrested as well. In spite of the bans and arrests, it was wildly popular. Fanny Hill was published in English at least 13 times between 1800 and and 1850. By the early 19th century, Fanny Hill was no longer the only body book on the shelves. Now we would consider it erotica, but when it was initially published and during the century that followed, it and others like it were considered porn, materials to be suppressed as they posed a real danger to society and, by extension, the king. So what was so dangerous about porn? 
Well, during the early 19th century, pornography was used as a political tool to criticize those in power or to challenge accepted ideas about sex and sexuality. Pornography in early 19th century Britain was less concerned with sex and more with challenging the institutions of power and subverting the social order. Growing out of Enlightenment ideas of free love and incorporating certain aspects of libertinism, pornography was revolutionary, and those producing, publishing, and distributing it risked their liberty and livelihoods to do so. When George IV attempted to divorce Caroline in 1820 by ordering an investigation into allegations of adultery on her part, it was these revolutionary pornographers who called him on his hypocrisy. Caricatures were produced depicting him in compromising positions with his various mistresses. Satirical stories were released as well, and some of these highlighted the bad behavior of George's supporters in what became known as the Queen Caroline Affair. Caroline was ultimately cleared of adultery, but the medium continued to provide an outlet for political criticism throughout the 19th century. Though libertinism at this point had been reduced to a term to describe the sexual excesses of the wealthy, it was that spirit of sexual nonconformity that spoke to the mainly working-class pornographers, people using the medium to challenge the culture of heterosexual monogamy and sexual repression. Early 19th century advocates of free love were in favor of birth control, open communication, and greater sexual freedom by reducing the number of marriages or long-term exclusive relationships, all ideas that fit within the framework of polyamory today. They weren't the only ones with unusual ideas about sex. Sexual nonconformity became increasingly common throughout the end of the 18th and the first half of the 19th centuries, with pre- and extramarital relationships on the rise, along with polyamory, polygamy, and divorce. Many with libertine leadings rejected labels as a point of pride, and some groups, such as the Cannibal Club later on, were more willing to confess to or objectively discuss homosexual fantasies or activity. The audience was there, and by the 1830s, there were 57 bookstores selling pornography in London alone. Though literacy was not what it is today, pornography was still accessible to different audiences through different means. Prints of obscene images were sold in bookstores and at country fairs, and though many of these were not particularly skilled, some were amazing. Illustrator Thomas Rawlinson produced a few himself, though, like his other work, they tended towards satire or social comment. Ziggy's making a little bit of social comment right now. You guys can probably hear him. All right. Where was I? Okay. So with these pictures that Thomas Rowlinson did, I'm going to try to dig a couple of them up and put them on our Instagram for you as well so you get an idea of uh, of what they looked like. Although I'm going to have to be careful and you might need to do a Google search yourself because... Well, like so many other platforms these days, Instagram is also cracking down on not safe for work content. Now, I'm not sure if that extends to, uh, well, Georgian caricatures, but I guess we'll see, won't we? Anyway, 
So for people who couldn't access these pictures, body songs were still super popular, and rude songbooks like the Frisky Songster were going through lots of printings at this time, and its obscene songs were played in taverns all over the city. One of the most prolific pornographers of the early 19th century was a man called William Dugdale. He was the son of a Quaker bookseller and a tailor, and he moved to London from Stockport in 1818 to become a radical pressman. And he certainly was that. Immediately becoming involved with groups in favor of democratic revolution, free love, freedom of the press, and the abolition of slavery, he was an active agitator in London as the radical press tried to advance their republican politics by attacking the monarchy and other influential figures in society. This increase led to the passing of the Six Acts in 1819, including the Blasphemous and Seditious Libel Acts, which were used to censor radical political publications as well as porn. Duckdale was not put off, however. He was implicated in the Cato Street Conspiracy in the same year, a failed attempt to assassinate the cabinet in an effort to bring down the British government. Though the leaders of the conspiracy were executed, Dugdale avoided arrest and went into publishing, opening his first bookstore in Seven Dials back in 1822. Over his 40-year career, he published countless pornographic works, including at least three editions of Fanny Hill, as well as other such classics as The Inutility of Virtue, The Lustful Turk, The Victim of Lust, and The Cremorne, which was an erotic magazine that was published throughout the 1850s, and it would later go on to inspire The Pearl. But we'll talk about that later. Throughout his career, his political ideas were evident in his approach to sexuality, as well as his continued criticism of the government. In 1839, he used his platform to publish The Book of Murder, a pamphlet criticizing the new poor laws. These laws were devastating to society's most vulnerable, cutting assistance and separating men and women in workhouses. The pamphlet also criticized the Malthusian idea that the poor should not marry or even have sex. While Dugdale was concerned with the plight of the working classes and his five shops were accessible to them, pornography throughout the rest of the century was not to follow this example. As authorship changed and distribution became more challenging, pornography became a pleasure for the wealthy, the content slowly becoming more focused on specific acts rather than activism. Between the 1860s and 1880s, much of British porn was produced by members of the Cannibal Club, which was a nickname for the inner circle of the London Anthropological Society. While most porn up until that point had been produced and distributed by the working class, the members of the Cannibal Club were particularly well-heeled, and their wealth and influence kept them from being regulated to quite the same extent. Formed by Richard Burton and Dr. James Hunt, the club also included Algernon Charles Swinburne, Richard Monckton Milnes, prominent divorce judge Sir James Plaisted Wilde, General Studholm, and Charles Duncan Cameron, among others. They picked the name to reflect their interest in imperialism and colonized people, as well as the subversive way in which they intended to operate. Look, guys, I'm not gonna lie. 
These are a bunch of Victorian edge lords who thought racism was sexy. But I digress. Though they enjoyed more freedom to explore their eccentricities than the average person, the club was careful not to keep written records and publish their pornography, usually presented as scientific study, anonymously or under pseudonyms. Unconcerned with issues of class outside of maintaining it exactly as it was, they saw the open discussion of sex as being revolutionary in itself. They took the tenets of libertinism and ran with them, embracing casual Satanism, habitually hailing the Marquis de Sade, and embracing what would have been viewed as deviant sexual behavior. They rejected what they saw as the limits of sexual identity, admitting to homosexual activity and desires in addition to their other interests. Today, they probably would have been categorized as bisexual, and that's honestly the coolest thing about them. These guys were problematic as all heck. But it was during this time that distribution of pornography became more exclusive, limited to the upper classes by price, because it could be prohibitively expensive. And, of course, also the legal restrictions. The club was not investigated in the same way as groups concerned with suppressing obscene materials were run by the gentry. They did not examine the libraries of members of parliament, even when those members did little to disguise their interests. Lord Houghton was known to have a library at his estate stocked with porn, and he wasn't the only one. Later, John Crichton Stewart, the third Marquess of Butte, had an elaborate bookcase constructed for the winter smoking room at Cardiff Castle, fitted with secret drawers for porn and cigars for his guests. How's that for hospitality? Though more and more legal and medical regulations were passed to limit obscenity, these didn't apply to the wealthy, of course. For everybody else, there was the Society for the Suppression of Vice. Formed in 1802, the Society for the Suppression of Vice was a group of volunteers from the gentry who paid for the prosecution of pornographers out of pocket. It was that big of a deal to them, they, they literally paid for it themselves. Like, get a hobby. Anyway, <laughs> pornographers could be tried for obscenity, distribution, or sedition under these six acts, and if convicted, the sentence was usually a fine and or imprisonment with hard labor. Still, this did not slow distribution until the passage of the Obscene Publications Act of 1857. But even this act didn't stop pornographers from reaching across class lines to distribute their materials throughout England and beyond. They just had to get a little bit more creative. The National Vigilance Association merged with the Society for the Suppression of Vice in the 1880s, and together they shifted their focus away from pursuing individual arrests and concentrated on effecting meaningful legislative change. New Scotland Yard was rather more effective at making arrests than the SSV, and pornographers experienced another more significant setback with the Post Office Protection Act of 1884, which made it illegal to send indecent items through the mail. It was a bit like the Comstock Act, which was passed in the States in 1873. Now, this did not only apply to pornographers and their distributors, but it was also applied to people who were sending birth control or information about that through the post. Those breaking this law could expect fines and up to a year's imprisonment with hard labor. 
Not to be kept down, pornographers went abroad. By the end of the 19th century, Paris had become the center of pornography distribution for the West. The anti-obscenity laws did not extend to France, so British pornographers continued operations in exile, sending catalogs through the mail and using an elaborate system of mail drops and middlemen, or women, to ensure the materials reached their clients without being intercepted or destroyed. By the time The Pearl was published in 1879, pornography had changed so much that it was barely recognizable. While Cleland had written a work of wit with Fanny Hill, pornography was quickly devolving to be focused more on specific sex acts than developed stories. Between 1880 and 1914, pornography became increasingly formulaic. In the case of The Pearl, it was episodic and at times shocking for the sake of it. The Pearl was an erotic magazine that ran from July of 1879 until its Christmas issue for December of 1880. It was officially published anonymously, but it has been attributed to William Lazenby. Tongue firmly in cheek, The Pearl published everything from the perverse to the ridiculous with a particular fascination with themes of flagellation and incest. Short stories, confessions, and poems would appear, featuring a truly fantastic assortment of euphemisms for genitals. It disappeared as suddenly as it appeared, though sets of its issues were sold long after it went out of print. It has been reissued again in recent years, and now copies of it are sold on the high street, a fact that Lazenby might find amusing given the trouble he had getting his issues to his readers. William Lazenby was one of half a dozen prominent pornographers that dominated the industry until 1914. Reclaiming the industry from the Cannibal Club, Lazenby was Britain's main publisher of obscene materials between 1873 until his arrest in 1886, issuing such classics as The Romance of Lust in 1873 and everybody's favorite, The Story of a Dildo in 1880. Lazenby's success enabled him to build a veritable media empire, and when police raided his home and places of work, they found in excess of 16,000 books, photographs, slides, and prints at one place, and five additional cab loads at others. He was tried, found guilty, and sentenced to two years of hard labor, but he is thought to have escaped to Paris before serving. Lazenby often worked with Edward Avery, Leonard Smithers, Harry Sidney Nichols, and Charles Carrington, a close group of pornographers who traded marketing tips and helped each other in their endeavors. While they all experienced pushback, Leonard Smithers was unique in that he actually courted public scrutiny. He boosted Aubrey Beardsley's career by encouraging him to work with Oscar Wilde on Salome in 1894. But sadly, his career suffered following Oscar Wilde's trials in 1895, and he eventually died in poverty. Not waiting to be arrested, Charles Carrington of Bethnal Green set up in Paris with Lazenby, Nichols, and Avery, where he achieved particular success through mail-order pornography. Throughout his career, he published numerous volumes, including Untrodden Fields of Anthropology in 1895, Sweet Seventeen, 
the true story of a daughter's awful whipping and its delightful, if dire, consequences in 1910, and Memoirs of a Russian Princess in 1890. There was still plenty of money to be made. By this point, pornography had become an expensive indulgence for the wealthy, and it was priced as such. A complete set of My Secret Life by Walter, a million-word epic detailing a remarkably active lifetime of sex that was almost certainly made up, sold for between 40 to 100 pounds. Printing it was such a mission that only six copies were rumored to have come back to England from its printing in Amsterdam. At the same time, photos were growing in popularity, and they were sold in singles or as cabinet sets, often depicting nude or half-naked women cavorting as goddesses or nymphs, men with other men, and couples having sex, many of them bizarrely wearing hats and smiling at the camera. I mean, why not, right? If the print sets didn't provide enough titillation, there was also the horn book, which was kind of like England's answer to the Kama Sutra. It had more than 62 sex positions in the first part alone. The names are intriguing. <laughs> Aside from the ordinary and the ordinary legs up, there was also the baker. I mean, it's anybody's guess what that is. Uh, also, the St. George, the view of the Low Countries, which has nothing to do with South Carolina, I'm afraid, speared sideways, and the elastic cunt. By the end of the 19th century, pornography had come a long way from its political origins. It had devolved from body literature to multimedia smut. As the demands of its wealthy readers grew more specific, pornography began to organize itself into the categories based on kink that many might recognize today in various subgenres of the adult film industry. Though many view pornography as a modern vice that has taken off over the past few years with premium cable channels and the internet, its origins were surprisingly progressive. As for the lack of story or characterization, well, we have the Victorians to thank for that. This episode of Dirty Sexy History was brought to you in part by my local university library, who has a truly fantastic collection of books on the history of porn. I'll be back with a coffee in the morning, guys. You want anything? I would also like to thank our amazing patrons on Patreon. Dirty Sexy History is brought to you by the incredible Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Elizabeth Davis, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Janine Meberg, and Jessica Miller. If you would like to support the show, please check us out on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen because it really helps us out. As always, you can find us through our website at DirtySexyHistory.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where we will post photos for this week's show, <laughs> however ill-advised that sounds. I'll do my best, okay? Anyway, <laughs> Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast and this show was written, produced, researched, and all that good stuff by me, Jessica Kale, and it was edited by the very patient and helpful John Jenkins. My sources today include Stephen Carver, 
the 19th century underworld, crime, controversy, and corruption. Colette Colligan, Esoteric Pornography, Sir Richard Burton's Arabian Nights and the Origins of Pornography, Victorian Review, Volume 28, Number 2. Tracy C. Davis, The Actress in Victorian Pornography, Theatre Journal 41, Number 3. Stephen Marcus, The Other Victorians. Bradford K. Mudge, The Whore's Story, Women, Pornography, and the British Novel, 1684-1830. Lisa Z. Seigel, Governing Pleasures, Pornography and Social Change in England, 1815-1914. Jamie Stoops, Class and Gender Dynamics of the Pornography Trade in Late 19th Century Britain, The Historical Journal 58, Number 1. Chantel Thauvet, Defining Early Modern Pornography, The Case of Venus and Adonis, Journal for Early Modern Cultural Studies 12, Number 1. See you next week.